Last week on The Business of Bees, the pollination economy is positively booming. We used to be a honey production company that did a little bit of pollination work. And we're now a pollination services company that does a little bit of honey production. But beekeepers are struggling to keep up with the demand for more hives. We're always sold out. Prices are continuing to go up. You know, it's great for business, but it's, it's a little stressful. We grab 2,100 queens a day. But the economic impact of bees also extends way beyond farming. Around the world, there is one Burt's Bees lip balm sold every second. From cosmetics and pharmaceuticals into trendy new food products. We make the honey, we mix it with water, and we ferment it out and bottle it. We call it bee to bottle. From Bloomberg Environment in Washington, D.C., I'm Adam Allington. And I'm David Schultz. And you're listening to The Business of Bees, a podcast about the secret and surprising role that honeybees play in our economy, our history, and our day-to-day lives. What are we going to do today, Adam? David, today we're going to start things off by meeting a beekeeper. I'm uh, Julius Kolarek and uh, started in beekeeping way back in the school days. Julius is in his 70s and has been keeping bees for about 50 years on his cherry farm in Leelanau County, Michigan. So I'm thinking of something way up north, maybe close to a lake. You're not far off. So Leelanau is this peninsula surrounded by Lake Michigan. I actually grew up there, just about three miles from Julius's farm, actually. So when I went back to visit family, I took my tape recorder and paid him a visit to see how his bees were doing. Let me light us up the smoker and we'll walk over there. And uh, it irritates the bees, so when we open up a hive, it, uh, they keep their mind off of us. We walk back behind his barn where he has about 10 hives, and he cracks one open. And? Things are not good. But I don't like the sound of it. Is that an angry sound? Well, no, it's not a angry sound. It's a hum that uh, I think they're queenless. Inside, thousands of little brown and yellow bees, each about the size of a fingernail, are buzzing around frantically. As it turns out, maybe a little too frantically. Wait, so the other bees can tell when the queen is gone? That's right. These bees are a species called Apis mellifera. A healthy Apis mellifera queen produces a substance called queen pheromone that allows the other bees to sense her presence inside the colony. And when the queen bee dies or leaves the colony? The bees can sense it. Usually within about five hours, they become agitated, and a veteran beekeeper like Julius can actually hear the difference. Now, if the queen in this hive is dead, Julius has two options. He can buy a new queen and install her into the hive, or he can let the bees raise a replacement monarch, which takes about three weeks, and given that the life cycle of a bee is six weeks, and each passing day without a queen means more bees dying and not being replaced, and that means fewer worker bees out collecting pollen and nectar. Oh, that means no workers, no honey. Exactly. And more importantly for guys like Julius, no worker bees out pollinating crops. Right, which we learned in the last episode, the demand for pollination services has gone through the roof. Correct. But that's not what we're here to talk about now. Today we're going to dig deep into the biology and history of Apis mellifera to find out what makes it so perfect for our needs, how it essentially became the bee. There may be 16,000 plus different types of bees, but there are only about seven major species of honeybees. And of those seven, we chose one. This is Alexander Zomchek. He's an apiculturist at the University of Miami, Ohio. Sorry, an apiculturist? That's a person who studies honey production. 
He says, according to the archaeological evidence, humans have been exploiting apis honeybees for about 9,000 years. It's a long and inglorious history. We were, to put it gently, we were plunderers. So before we were keeping bees, we'd, what, go out in the forest and find some wild honeybees up in a tree? Yep. And then more than likely chop the tree down, smother the bees with brimstone smoke, and then take the honey. So that just doesn't sound sustainable at all. I mean, it's sort of like killing the cow to get the milk. I know, right? Well, eventually people figured out that if you could just, you know, put the bees in something. We kind of captured them in clay pots. We ran them up and down the Nile with the Egyptians. Um, Napoleon uh, loved them as part of their thrift, their industry, because it wasn't a highly aggressive, good honey producer Um, And so we chose, if you will, kind of like the golden retriever from that group. Apis mellifera's ability to make lots of honey was no small thing. For much of history, it was one of the few sweeteners people had. In fact, when the first European settlers arrived at Jamestown and Plymouth, in their mind, they were headed to the land of milk and honey that they'd read about in the Bible. So they brought the cows and the bees. There's a good saying by a 17th century scholar that said the honeybees did better than the settlers did. That's Tammy Horn Potter. I am the Kentucky State Apiarist. I work with the Kentucky Department of Agriculture. In addition to her job inspecting commercial hives and teaching beekeeping classes, Tammy also wrote a book called Bees in America, How the Honeybee Shaped a Nation. And she says even though honeybees weren't native, they did remarkably well on their own. The forests were very healthy uh, because of Native American practices. So there were plenty of stands of a type of a species of tree called black gum. And black gum trees are notable because they decay from the inside out very quickly. And so honeybees did very well. They would swarm and take up residence in these trees. And so even though Apis wasn't native, it thrived basically as a wild bee. I mean, you'd have some beekeepers keeping a few colonies. To help pollinate the apple trees that were brought over. It was also during this time that the sport of honey hunting became a popular pastime. And that's more or less where we stayed until 1851. So what exactly happened in 1851? 1851 was the year the modern beehive was invented. So you mean like kind of a stackable wooden box with a hole in the bottom? Yep, that's the one. And the man responsible for that revolution was a Presbyterian minister named Lorenzo Langstroth. Langstroth was born in Philadelphia, got a degree in theology from Yale before moving to a congregation in Massachusetts, and it was around this time that Langstroth was diagnosed with what today would likely be called seasonal depression. Basically, he had these long bouts of melancholy where he wouldn't speak to anyone. Eventually, he's persuaded to go see a doctor and miraculously, rather than prescribe some kind of laudanum to cure his moody vapors, the doctor tells him to spend more time outdoors. So kind of like nature therapy. Exactly. He literally was prescribed lots of walks, fresh air, and that sort of thing. So What he would end up doing is he became fascinated enough with some of these bee trees. It became a focus of his. He would have local farmers come along and cut them down and drag the bee trees to his backyard. And he would just observe them. He would literally sit for hours and hours and hours. And eventually two things happened. His mood improves. He perks up. He becomes fascinated with beekeeping and starts sending away for books and writing down his own ideas. 
And as he's watching the bees day after day, crawling around in these hollowed out trees, he has this eureka moment. And what he's discovered after we had stared at them for literally tens of thousands of years was that three-eighths of an inch, a carpenter's number, three-eighths of an inch was the distance the bees could crawl between those parallel cones. That three-eighths of an inch is what later became known simply as the bee space. So basically this precise gap between combs that allowed the bees to crawl around in their own home. Right. Anything bigger than that, and the bees would just fill it up with wax and comb. But then he goes a step further and takes this idea of bee space and puts it in a box. And inside each box, he hangs these removable frames, kind of like an empty picture frame, each spaced three-eighths of an inch apart. When the bees are put in the box, they look up at those frames and think, you know, I could put some wax up there. And then the other bees join in, and before you know it, the Langstroth hive is invented. The hives are crammed with honey and ready for man to rob. The bees have made millions of journeys to add to that precious store. To be or not to be, to be it is. Oh, it was fundamental. I mean, there's just no doubt about that. Because once beekeepers can manage colonies, they can check on their health. Say if it's a, if it's a drought, they can help provide supplemental food. And as word of this great new hive spreads, people start noticing other advantages, too. One of the things they noticed was that their honey yield increased significantly. David Arnold is a beekeeper from South Carolina. And I'm the president of the Beefer Jasper Beekeepers Association. Beeswax has a tremendous amount of honey tied up in it. It takes 10 drops of nectar for a honeybee to make one drop of honey. And then it takes 10 drops of honey for a honeybee to make one flake of wax. So as you would save these honeycombs and then put them back on your hive, the bees didn't have to construct copious amounts of beeswax. They could go ahead and just fill them up. The other bonus, you don't have to kill your bees to get the honey. Which was a huge boost to having larger numbers of colonies, and then it systematized beekeeping in a way that you could grow your operation much larger. Langstroth publishes a book on his findings in 1853 called The Hive and the Honeybee. It's still widely read today. And before long, Apis mellifera is literally everywhere, and not just to make honey, but also to pollinate more and more crops. All right, but here's the thing that I don't quite understand. When you start talking about pollination, isn't Apis just doing the same job that could just as easily be done by any of North America's 4,000 other native species? Say, for example, your ground-nesting mason bee or your rusty patch bumblebee. Alfalfa leafcutter bees, they're good pollinators. Southeastern blueberry bees, squash bees. Cardi bees. Oh, great. There's All right, there's our bee pun for this episode, <laughs> folks. Well, for one thing, many native bee species are solitary and don't live in large colonies, which limits the number of acres they can cover. In a typical hive that we have today, in the height of summer, 50 to 90,000 honeybees are working in concert. In addition to reproducing quickly and in large numbers, Zamchek says honeybees are also these amazing generalists. They'll harvest pollen from almost any flower and then go back to the hive to tell the other bees where to find them. Two miles out, 15 degrees to the sun, that's the hot spot. Suddenly you have tens of thousands of honeybees hitting a particular crop on a particular time. And given that most of our crops today only bloom for about a week, week and a half to two weeks, you got to hit them hard and you got to hit them fast. And there is just, there is no substitute, none. According to bee historians, the first honeybees arrived in North America through Jamestown, Virginia in 1622. They were a particular subspecies of Apis mellifera called the German black bee. And these German bees were very aggressive. 
and uh, nobody liked to work with them. This is Jeff Lee, a commercial beekeeper and package bee producer from North Carolina. And among the seven subspecies of honeybees, including these ordinary German bees, Jeff says that today there's basically three varieties that are used commercially. And among those three, one in particular. There's the Carniolan varieties, there's a Caucasian variety, uh, but the Italians are the most dominant of the honeybees. They've been the most successful. These Italian bees, called Apis mellifera ligustica, arrived in North America in 1859, and Jeff says they quickly set themselves apart in a number of really practical ways. They were bred to be high honey producers and to be very docile, and so they quickly became the dominant race of Apis mellifera in the United States. So these little Italian bees, they're well-adjusted, good earners, and pleasant at cocktail parties. What's not to like? I know, right? Well, Jeff said that there's also trade-offs with these European bee species. You always sacrifice something in genetics, and you sacrifice the sort of the hyper-vigilant behavior of, wait, you're not supposed to be in my hive, and trying to get other parasites out of the hive. So, over the last 20 years, things have started to go a bit sideways for Apis mellifera. As it turns out, there are some advantages of being aggressive, especially when it comes to, say, defending your hive from a parasitic mite. Asian bees are brutal. When they find mites, they bite them in half. They do not play games. Samuel Ramsey is an entomologist working at the USDA Bee Research Laboratory in Beltsville, Maryland. His work focuses on parasites and specifically a parasitic mite native to Southeast Asia called Varroa destructor. There was a point somewhere between 60 and 110 years ago where Varroa decided to switch from the Asian bees to the European honeybees. And it's that jump in species where things get really crazy because European honeybees are not very well defended against parasites because they did not grow up in the presence of parasites. So Varroa are these tiny little mites that attach to the body of bees and do what mites do, feeding on your blood, but it's also much worse. It's less like a tick being on you and sucking up some of your blood and then walking away, and more like a tick liquefying a portion of your liver and sucking that out of your body. They also transmit viruses, and since the European bees didn't evolve in Asia over millions of years along with Varroa, they don't have a natural defense, and the ones they do have are kind of soft. Take, for example, the case of the small hive beetle. Hive beetles are a common Apis mellifera pest, but when a beetle enters a colony, rather than attacking it and driving it from the hive, Apis feeds them. Wait, what? Apis feeds them? Are they running some kind of bed and breakfast? Yeah, you know, they just sort of nudge them over into a corner of the hive and keep them full with lots of nectar. So the beetles don't spread out and lay their eggs all over the hive. Oh, well, that's really heartwarming. Well, you might change your mind when you hear about the impact Varroa is having on honeybees today, especially when humans have made it so easy for them to thrive by putting so many hives close together to pollinate crops. Thanks. Well, we'll definitely talk more about Varroa mites in future episodes because, believe me, it is a big, big problem for beekeepers. Well, you feel like you've learned something about Apis mellifera? I do, and I'm thinking maybe it needs to be a little more aggressive in the future. But Adam, what do we have coming up in the next episode? Next week, we're going to talk all about bees and agriculture. You know, they'll go from almonds to plums to cherries to apples to vine crops to pit fruits to cotton 
to lima beans, to watermelons, and then their season is over. The Business of Bees is produced by myself, along with David Schultz and Marissa Horn. Our editors were Josh Block, Greg Henderson, and Molly Ward. We had fact-checking help from Colleen Murphy and Mahogany Lyles. Music for this episode is courtesy of a Creative Commons license from Poddington Bear. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please rate and review it in the iTunes library. It really helps people discover us. And that's it. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with another episode next week.